Syria bleeds into Iraq today, Wednesday, May 29th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Syria's civil war is having an impact next door in Iraq. This former U.S. ambassador in Baghdad says Washington needs to focus on Iraq first. Long before Syria, let's try to get that back under control and then see what we got, because Syria is an entirely different dynamic, incredibly complicated. Also on the program, an economically depressed town in Northern Ireland gets a facelift before it hosts the next G8 summit. They have uh, placed large photographs in the windows that if you were driving past and glanced out the window, it would look as if this was a thriving business. And later, helping Chinese students adjust to college life in the U.S. The goal of the class is to teach students about American culture, so things that they probably wouldn't just pick up on by watching TV. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Between 400 and 500 people killed in the month of May alone in Iraq. You may think that sounds like a headline from a 2006 edition of this program, but it's not. That's Iraq's reality right now. The spike in violence is raising fears of an all-out sectarian war in the country, barely a year and a half since the last U.S. troops left Iraq. Veteran diplomat Ryan Crocker was the U.S. ambassador in Iraq from 2007 to 2009. He says the flames of sectarian conflict in Iraq are being stoked by, among other things, the violence in neighboring Syria. The um, vast majority of the attacks during the month of May, uh, as I understand it, have been generated by al-Qaeda, the uh, new alliance from hell between uh, Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria and al-Qaeda in Iraq. And because of the conflict in Syria and the rise of Jabhat al-Nusra, they have a lot more capability than they used to. So is is this Uh, an indication that the violence in Syria is seriously affecting the stability in Iraq? I don't think there's any question about it. And uh, it may not stop with Iraq. Uh, the Jordanians are having problems. The Turks are having problems. We have seen the spillover already into violence in Lebanon, both in the north, in Tripoli, and right in Beirut, where um, some rockets have gone into Hezbollah neighborhoods. So this has a very worrisome regional dimension. I mean, you make it kind of sound, at least in Iraq, that it's quite an internal problem with these effects coming over from Syria. But I mean, do you see a through line from the American occupation and what's happening now in Iraq? In other words, how much of the current violence in Iraq is America's fault? What I see is, uh, again, al-Qaeda in Iraq playing a major role. Now, al-Qaeda in Iraq developed following the 2003 invasion, kind of spiked in its its influence in the 06-07 period, as, as you noted, but then diminished as Iraqis themselves turned against al-Qaeda and the uh, coalition significantly uh, damaged them. While they were never out of business completely, they were very badly weakened. The game changer, if you will, is the fight in Syria that has really empowered al-Qaeda there. And that in turn has strengthened al-Qaeda in Iraq. Are you saying, though, that Iraq was not ready in 2011 for the U.S. to leave? You know, I, I'm not sure that uh, military forces alone are capable of 
handling these kinds of terror attacks. It's more of an intelligence function. But that said, um, you know, I certainly was a proponent for a, a continued, although reduced presence, precisely to provide some of these capabilities, uh, including special ops, to the Iraqis. Yes, I wish it had been possible to uh, get that agreement in 2010 and uh, have us still on the ground there. Ambassador Crocker, you apparently had warned about what the U.S. invasion of Iraq might do to the stability of the country and the region uh, back in 2002. What is your reaction now to the violence that's taking place? Well, one of the uh, points I made back then and have made subsequently with some colleagues, we were not trying to be predictive so much as we were just trying to send a warning that, you know, when you launch a military action to overthrow someone else's government, you set in motion forces that you cannot control or even predict. You know, I had thought and hoped we were out of the woods on the dangerous sectarian violence after 07, 08, and now it's back. What we have to accept if we don't want to see Iraq devolve into a huge danger to the region through a rampant instability, so we have to commit ourselves to a long-term engagement. We've got an agreement that says we're strategic partners. We need to act on it. And that means doing what some really great diplomats are already doing, including our current ambassador and uh, senior level officials from the State Department. But frankly, I, I think we've got to take um, some plays out of the book from the time I was there and uh, use top-level officials to get the attention of the Iraqis and work them through this. You know, when Secretary Kerry was in Iraq in April, that was the first visit by a Secretary of State in four years. I think we're just going to have to pay more attention. I mean, given the violence in neighboring Syria, is there an opportunity now to address both conflicts at once, since they do seem to be interrelated? Well, let me just put it this way. I would certainly start with Iraq. Iraq before Syria. Long before Syria, let's try to get that back under control and then see what we've got, because Syria is an entirely different dynamic, incredibly complicated, and uh, we'll see what comes of this international conference proposed for for next month. But uh, I do not see a lot of good solutions or easy answers out there for Syria. Former Ambassador Ryan Crocker, he's now a fellow at Yale University's Johnson Center for the Study of American Diplomacy. Thanks very much, Ambassador. Thank you, Margo. Well, here's some concrete evidence that the conflict in Syria is having an impact next door in Iraq. Between 800 and 900 Syrian refugees cross the border into northern Iraq each day. Carolyn Miles is president of the humanitarian group Save the Children, and full disclosure, my sister also works for them. This past weekend, Carolyn Miles visited the Domiz refugee camp in northern Iraq. She says it was clearly overcrowded. You know, the camp was designed for 10,000 people. There are now 40,000 people in that camp, and almost half of them are children under the age of 18. So raw sewage running through the camp, garbage piling up. Many of the new arrivals are living in tents. It's very tough conditions there. And so what are all these children doing? I mean, I gather they don't have any school there. Well, they actually do have a school. We went to visit the school there, and our colleagues from UNICEF are running the school, but there were many kids waiting to get into the school who had registered but didn't have a place yet. And younger kids, those who are four, five, who normally would be in preschool if they were in Syria, are not going at all. 
aside from these masses of kids, what's the range of people you met in this camp, uh, the kinds of work they did, the lives they left behind in Syria? One of the families that we first met with when we came into the camp um, was a family that had gotten there about a year ago. The father was a, a house painter, and they were actually one of the luckier families. They did have a cinder block kind of one-room shelter that they were living in. They had fled when basically, you know, as the dad told us, there was no electricity, there was no water, there was no house anymore because it had bombed and then there was no livelihoods. And he said, we just couldn't stay anymore. So we had to leave. And they left from north of Damascus. So they had a long trip to get to Dumiz and were just waiting at this point. They really were wanting to go back, but not able to at this point. And they had two families that were living in this one shelter. I imagine a lot of people in the same situation just waiting to see when they can go back, and it doesn't look like that's coming anytime soon. No, they all talked about they would go back when Assad fell, but no one really had any idea when that would be. One of the families that we met, Hmm. the mom had had her baby in the camp. Hmm. She'd actually been able to get to the hospital that was just outside the camp to actually give birth, but she was there with a very young child and um, was very concerned about the health situation there. But again, when you go from, you know, a camp designed for 10,000 to 40,000 in the space of just a couple months, it's very tough to keep up with that. So with the camp operating at four times its usual capacity, what's the most pressing need? Hygiene, health and hygiene programs there. It was about 95 degrees. This is the early summer. This is spring. So within the next couple months, it will be extremely hot, up to 45 or 115 degrees. The threat of things like cholera are very real. So there was a lot of concern, and that really is the health and hygiene situation has got to get fixed. Given the conditions, how's morale uh, among the refugees? Well, it was actually surprisingly calm. And most of the Syrians there are Kurds. They come from the northern eastern part of Syria. They were in a place where they felt comfortable because this is the Kurdish area of Iraq. What they talked mostly to us about was, you know, we really need to get more support for basic services. As things came up, like schools, and we were also working there to um, open a child-friendly space in partnership with UNICEF, so that particularly the younger kids, but also the kids, when they're not in school, to have the kids have a place to be, a safe place to play and have some activities. Those are things that were helping, but um, I think the situation's going to get tenser as, as time goes on. Why do you think that? I think more people, the heat is certainly not going to help here. The sewage in the streets, all of those things, I think, are going to make for a pretty tense summer in northern Iraq. Carolyn Miles, president of Save the Children. She just returned from the Domiz refugee camp in Iraqi Kurdistan. Domiz has been welcoming thousands of Syrian refugees. Carolyn, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Marco. Sixty years ago today, New Zealander Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tenzing Norgay made it to the top of the world. Us 35 miles from Kathmandu, capital of Nepal, Hillary and Tenzing were welcomed and congratulated by their fellow members of the expedition. They reached the summit of Mount Everest some 29,000 feet up at 11.30 in the morning on May 29, 1953. They came down heroes, albeit modest ones. And how did Tenzing feel up there on top of the world? He's very happy. Hillary, too, spoke about their feet modestly. In an interview with his brother Rex, he described the last big obstacle he overcame on his way to the top. What about that uh, 
rock step. It was fairly steep, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was, I was a bit worried about it at first and thought that we wouldn't get up it. But uh, fortunately, there was a, a crack between the ice and the rock. Mm-hmm. I got into this and I was able to wriggle my way up it. That crack is now called the Hillary Step. Hillary placed a cross at the peak while Norgay left an offering of chocolates in the snow. And while Hillary claimed that he and Norgay reached the summit together, Norgay claimed Hillary was up there first. However it happened, the men remained lifelong friends. Hillary spoke about his friend in a 1974 Smithsonian recording archived by the Library of Congress. My sort of opinion is clouded greatly by affection more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, tending as a charming personality. Now, I think, really, he has been quite remarkable. After all, he started from very, very simple beginnings, just as a shepherd tribesman. He was born in a little village of Tami. He always was very strong and very um, forceful. He uh, rose up through the ranks of shepherd porter up to uh, sort of a high-altitude shepherd porter. He became a tiger, which means that he carried loads to over 26,000 feet. And then he actually more or less graduated to the ranks of being one of the the climbing members of the party, which very, very few Sherpas had ever done before. But, you know, although he's had all this um, adulation from his own people and tremendous uh, respect throughout the world, he still has the same charm and uh, the same easy manner that he had before. Edmund Hillary later joined many more expeditions in the Himalayas, including a rather unusual one, which he described for the Smithsonian. One of our programs was to examine uh, this uh, business of the abominable snowman. Mm -hmm. We went into this very carefully on my last expedition, examined all the evidence, and we got a perfectly reasonable explanation, we feel, to all the evidence that appeared, like such as tracks, uh, yeti scalps, skins uh, and the stories of the of the lamas in the monasteries mm-hmm. we didn't have any difficulty in go- getting a perfectly rational explanation for all these phenomena my reaction is now definitely that this whole story is mythological Whew, glad that's cleared up Sir Edmund Hillary died in 2008 at the age of 88. Tenzing Norgay was 71 when he passed away in 1986 today the world remembers their moment in history 60 years ago Still ahead on the world, we take you to Northern Ireland for a tasty lamb chop made of paper. This is PRI Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Each year, the United States welcomes hundreds of thousands of college students from overseas. They come from many countries, but China leads the list. And like students from all over, the first thing they learn is how little they know about life in America. In just a minute, we'll hear a story from Los Angeles about a program that gives Chinese students a taste of America. Literally, they attend a Thanksgiving dinner. It's the kind of story we'll be hearing more of as part of our global nation coverage, headed up by the world's Monica Campbell. And Monica, before we turn to that story about Chinese students in L.A., give us the big picture on the Global Nation Project. What kind of stories are we going to be hearing from Global Nation? Well, Marco, what we're seeing in the U.S. are these huge seismic demographic shifts, right? And I, I was personally struck by this recent Census Bureau projection that said that immigrants will be the main driver of U.S. population growth within 30 years. So it's clear we have this large immigrant community and all of these layers, and people talk about their immigrant heritage all of the time. 
But there's still this tendency to talk about immigrants as a separate group, like the other. And so what we're hoping to do is bring more conversations that are more unfiltered, you know, without experts necessarily speaking for immigrants and get to a more intimate level of discussion, you know, maybe complicate our perceptions a bit about immigrant life in the U.S. And Monica, I'm just curious, I mean, what is your own personal interest in this idea of a global nation? Well, you know, Marco, I've been immersed in this world myself, you know, ever since I was a kid. My mother's from Nicaragua and, you know, traveled widely in Latin America. And then I recently finished reporting in Mexico. I was living there as a correspondent and reported all over the region. So my interest is that I've seen this backstory, you know, the backstory of where what it means to leave your country, um, not only within my own family, but reporting in Mexico, you know, what it means to pack up and leave your world behind, essentially, and integrate yourself into a new world and have your feet in two worlds. And so it's something that, um, you know, in growing up, I didn't learn Spanish. I was not raised bilingual. Of course, now things are changing. So I'm interested in seeing how immigrants in the U.S. are changing these perceptions, you know, living their lives uh, their own way in the U.S. and how that's influencing our culture and at the same time challenging it. Well, we certainly look forward to hearing all the stories you'll be bringing us this year. Monica Campbell, who heads up the world's global nation coverage, check out our online home for Global Nation, too. That's at theworld.org slash Global Nation. And be sure to add your voice on Twitter and send us your pics on Instagram. Just include the hashtag Global Nation. Now, let's get back to those college students arriving from China. They've seen American TV and movies, but many of the students lack a basic familiarity with real life in America. So some colleges are aggressively trying to help them integrate. Reporter Roxandra Guidi has this story from Los Angeles, the most popular place for Chinese students. In the United States, the tree-lined campus of the University of Southern California is the number one destination for international students, and the majority of them arrive from China. My name is Xiang Yijing, and uh, before I uh, applied to the graduate schools, I uh, looked at ranking for all the universities in America. USC was Jing's top choice, and the 26-year-old grad student has excelled, at least academically. It's been rougher to figure out how to socialize American style. So the university is working to make students like Jing feel at home. One of the things you might be thinking when coming to the U.S. is how will I make American friends, says the narrator of this USC video in Mandarin. The footage shows students chatting and smiling and exchanging that trademark American greeting, the handshake. To attract Chinese students, USC is pouring resources into workshops and videos like this for their 13-week course called American Culture. Here's Chrissy Roth, USC's orientation program manager. The goal of the class is to teach students about American culture, so things that they probably wouldn't just pick up on by watching TV. So we want to actually give them experiences, bring them off campus, take them on field trips, take them to restaurants, but also teach them about... For Jing, the grad student, she says much of what she learned in her American culture course centered around food. Last semester, I took the American culture class, and the teachers brought us to like some restaurants and uh, 
I also went to an、uh, Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> try some American food. Yeah. So she's experienced Thanksgiving, but breaking out and interacting regularly with non-Chinese students—that's just barely happening. Jing's pretty quiet, and no books or videos can get rid of shyness. She says, but USC is trying to work with students like Jing. It kind of has to. It enrolls the most Chinese students of any U.S. university and charges forty-five thousand dollars a year tuition. Of course, not everyone can afford that. For other students attending, say, community college, well, they're flying more solo. Students like twenty-three-year-old Ben Yuanliu. He's from Qingdao, a city in eastern China. His family sold their home there to send him to a community college in LA, and he's enjoyed studying applied mathematics. But looking back, he wishes he'd loosened up his plan a bit. Maybe move here a year earlier to acclimate and work, be less of a financial burden on his parents, and gain more independence. I'm sometimes just too careful about、uh, like my steps. Maybe I should do like more adventurous things. Hoping to help students like Liu is Carol Zhu. She's impeccably dressed with a white blazer, high platform heels, coral lipstick. She's quick to say that she's not from Beijing, but from Harbin, a small village in northeast China. Her family also sacrificed to pay for her community college in LA, and she struggled to find her footing here. First of all, you know, living without your parents, money was the first issue. Even though you know, right now Chinese people have the reputation for their wealth management, <laughs> but、um, you know, as a 17, 18 years old student. I didn't have any idea what is expensive and what is cheap. She didn't know how to budget for meals or for rent. Now 26, Zhu is working on a book tailored to Chinese students called "How to Survive in the U.S. as an International Student." Her advice: Be independent. Meet people besides fellow Chinese. Don't move to an Asian enclave like Los Angeles, San Gabriel Valley. Before I came here, I knew, oh, I shouldn't stay with the Chinese students because I want to develop as a person, as a human being, as an explorer. So these days, Sue is always on the go, networking at social events. She's also a host for Skylink TV, a Chinese cable channel here. And last year, Sue became a U.S. citizen, and now she can't quite imagine returning to Harbin. For the world, I'm Ruxandra Guidi, Los Angeles. And you're listening to the world on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, we speak with the man who just created the world's biggest flag, and later, Swiss musicians in love with the Cajun music of Louisiana. It just blew our minds because we asked ourselves, "Who are those crazy white guys?" Playing this super happy version of blues, singing in in French. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a twenty thousand dollar grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is the World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The surviving suspect in the Boston Marathon bombing reportedly telephoned his family in Russia this week for the first time since his arrest. Johar Sarnayev's mother tells Bloomberg News that her son said, "Quote: 
I am absolutely fine. My wounds are healing. Everything is in God's hands. Tonight, our partners at the PBS program Nova look back at the Boston attack and the role technology played in cracking the case. Veteran science journalist Miles O'Brien produced and directed the hour-long program. Working on the documentary got him thinking about the shifting role of surveillance cameras in our society. He says police in Boston knew from the start that video evidence would be key. I spoke to the Boston police commissioner, Edward Davis, and Within 10 minutes of the bombing having occurred, he had a detective going up and down Boylston Street right there by the finish line, grabbing video individually from each of the uh, businesses that had security cameras. And it raises an interesting point. You would think in our day and age that the surveillance uh, apparatus in a city like Boston would be network connected and monitored in some control room somewhere. Not so. It requires a fair amount of shoe leather just to acquire the video and then bring it in. It's a very manual process. You indicate in your doc that the investigation could have gone even faster if Boston had some of the stuff that New York City has. They've got this domain awareness system. It's kind of a war room where police can watch and monitor video from thousands of cameras across the city in real time. You were there. What happens there? What's going on? This is a one of a kind in the world. You know, everybody thinks when we think CCTV cameras, we think of London which has by far the most cameras per square inch of any city in the world. However, they're not networked in a very cohesive way. What New York is trying to do is take uh, the cameras that exist, soon to be 6,000 cameras, feeding in to the lower part of Broadway, to a command center there, into a system they call domain awareness. So what they have done in conjunction with Microsoft is build some software that does the looking for them. And it does any number of things. It scans every license plate that comes across the bridges and tunnels into lower Manhattan, checks it against the terror watch list. It it has the ability to uh, flag suspicious behavior. If somebody leaves a bag on the sidewalk for any unusual period of time, whatever, they wouldn't tell me how long it is for security reasons, it will flag that. It has the ability, if I, if I tell it I'm looking for somebody wearing red within three blocks of the New York Stock Exchange right now, It'll, in, a, in two seconds, will give you a search of every camera that indicates someone wearing red in that vicinity. It also has the ability to go back as far as 30 days on any given camera. So domain awareness reminds me of total information awareness. I mean, some of these technologies make you worry about Big Brother watching oh you. So, um, I mean, how worried should the public be at a civil liberties level by the creepiness of what these technologies can achieve? I can't tell you how many times the chills went up and down my spine, Marco, thinking about all this. Yeah. When you think about it, put it all together, the facial recognition, the domain awareness. I'm afraid we have allowed our fear to create an apparatus which is uh, bordering on Big Brother. And I think in the end, what we all have to think about is what the, the real antidote to terrorism is not to let the terrorists win, not to be scared. And to the extent that we allow ourselves to creep into this Big Brother-esque police state, I think we, we, we head down a slippery slope and we end up, at the end of the day, if we don't watch it, in a world where, yeah, maybe we're safer, but do we really want to live in that world? As the U.S. has cooperated with other countries sharing intelligence, Russia in the case of the Sarnaya brothers, are, are many of those countries also equipped, uh, as equipped as the U.S. with these kinds of technologies? And does it matter right now? Well, what matters most is the connection between the countries, right? What, what you saw in the case of the Russia-U.S. interchange was a lot of miscommunication. You know, one of the questions that I, I haven't gotten to the bottom of, and it's not an easy one to get to, is how many times 
do Russian authorities, Russian spies, call up their American counterparts and say, hey, we got this Chechen you should be watching? Mm. Now, if they do that, you know, twice a month and Tamerlan Tsarnaev slips through the cracks, there's a problem. If they do it 4,000 times a month and he slips through the cracks, that's an entirely different story. And you can imagine a world where the Russians would like to point a finger toward a Chechen national and give him trouble somehow, wherever he may be, the U.S. or elsewhere. So I think it's really important that, you know, in a perfect world, it'd be great if if we all talked and communicated and shared this stuff. I don't think we're ever going to live in that world. Science journalist Miles O'Brien is a reporter for the special Nova presentation called Manhunt, Boston Bombers. It airs tonight on PBS. Miles, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure, Marco. Thank you. Another country that has stepped up its surveillance to fight terrorism is Spain. That nation has seen deadly bombings in the past. Spanish authorities hope new technology will make them better prepared in the future. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. On the morning of March 11, 2004, a series of bombs ripped through commuter trains in Madrid's main station, Atocha. This audio is a voice message one panicked passenger tried to leave. I'm in Atocha, she says. A bomb has exploded. You hear more explosions, then the line goes dead. This caller survived, but 191 people died in the attack. Nearly 2,000 were injured. It took three weeks for authorities to track down the suspects. Police cornered them in a Madrid apartment where they blew themselves up. Spanish security professionals say there are many reasons why the suspects weren't identified sooner. Ricardo Huelin is a retired Spanish army colonel who now runs a security website called BELT. He says the Madrid bombings took place just a decade ago, but that was a whole other age when it comes to anti-terrorism technology. He says 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, the technology was basically limited to phone taps. The use of closed-circuit TVs was barely getting off the ground. And they were of limited use, he says, both in quality and storage. And this limited our ability to analyze the images for intelligence purposes. The images the cameras at Atocha station captured were a case in point. They were grainy and from a distance, and they didn't reveal any clues as to the perpetrators, nor were there cameras at the suburban stations where the suspects boarded the trains with the bombs. Lacking such surveillance, police had to rely on more time-consuming techniques, such as examining the chemical explosives and the cell phone detonators used in bombs that malfunctioned. Today, the story is very different. Passengers arriving at the Atocha station are filmed from the second they step off the train until they exit the station by state-of-the-art, high-resolution cameras. And the surveillance hardly stops there. Javier Vidal is a retired military intelligence operative. He says, as in many countries, today Spaniards live in a society under watch. You leave your house for work, he says, and you're filmed by multiple cameras, at the pharmacy, the tobacco shop, at banks. And today, ordinary citizens take videos on their smartphones. Vidal and other Spanish security experts say with today's technology, authorities can track down terrorists faster. The police here use facial recognition software. They have vast databases of digitized fingerprints and DNA samples and programs to cross-reference it all instantly. And Spain is developing its own technologies to thwart terrorists. This is from a video of a Spanish firm in Murcia testing a small remote-controlled helicopter armed with an array of cameras, including one that uses infrared to film at night. There are several Spanish companies bringing unmanned craft to market. 
So far, their use has been limited to non-law enforcement projects, such as monitoring forest fires. But retired Colonel Ricardo Weylin says Spain's anti-terrorist services want the mini drones too. Estos pequeños drones que son que tienen un, unos potentes eh, These unmanned aircraft are tiny, with good microphones that can record conversations on the street below. He says, with the images and sounds, we could ID people immediately. And in the case of terrorists, he says, either track their movements or pick them up. But to stop terrorists, you first have to know who they are. And that's where Weyling and other experts say technology reaches its limits, at least here in Spain. At the Barcelona School of Criminology, a former anti-terrorism agent with Spain's Civil Guard, Luis Jimenez, says technology alone can't sniff out terrorists, especially before they attack. If you ask him what can, he laughs and grows cryptic. (laughs) Human intelligence, he says, is the most important factor. You always need someone behind the machines, and not just to analyze the information. You need people who look for information out on the streets. In other words, undercover agents, informers, spies. Jimenez and others won't talk about the extent to which Spain has infiltrated extremist groups. But retired Colonel Weylin puts it this way when discussing technology and the fight against terrorism. Missiles don't win wars, foot soldiers do. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. I do it, you do it, we all do it, I hope, especially if I'm coming to your house. We do it when we have special guests, fresh towels in the bathroom, give the counters a wipe, maybe even hide our dirty laundry in the closet. Well, the town of Enniskillen in County Fermanagh, Northern Ireland, is sprucing up for some very special guests. President Obama, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and Russian President Vladimir Putin, to name just three. In a little over two weeks, they and other leaders will gather for a G8 summit at a golf resort in Enniskillen. And as the date approaches, the cleanup is moving into high gear. It includes new coats of paint on houses, tidying up lawns, and putting up fake storefronts on shuttered businesses. Irish Times reporter Dan Keenan visited Enniskillen and saw the cleanup process. Describe these fake buildings, first of all. What do they look like? These are basically empty shops that are being now made to look as if they are thriving businesses. And they've done that in a very clever fashion indeed. How do they do it? What they've done is they have filled the shop front window with a picture of what was the business before it went bankrupt or closed. In other words, grocery shops, butcher shops, uh, pharmacies, uh, you name it. They have placed large photographs in the windows that if you were driving past and glanced out the window, it would look as if this was a thriving business. It's an attempt, really, by the the local authority to make the place look as positive as possible for the uh, visiting G8 leaders and their entourages. And it's really trying to put a mask on uh, a recession that has really hit this part of Ireland really very badly indeed. So it's kind of like a trompe l'oeil, and I saw a picture in one newspaper. I'm a little confused because the door looked open. Yeah, it it looks as if the door is open, and inside you can see a well-stocked shop. It's nothing of the sort. That door has been locked shut for well over a year because... That particular business went bust this time last year. And that is an image to make it look as if uh, everything is normal in in the town and in the county. But unfortunately, it's not. The the county of Fermanagh has suffered terribly uh, as a result of the the credit crisis and the resulting recession. How are the citizens of Enniskillen kind of reacting to this? It's kind of not very funny, is it? It's not funny. We're inclined to take a very lighthearted look upon it. But the residents of this part of the world are, are looking upon the arrival of the G8 Positively, because at the end of the day, it's not often that you have the eight wealthiest and most powerful leaders on earth visiting your part of the world. But on the other hand, they are a little bit 
skeptical of really very shallow attempts like this to try and make the place look better than it actually is. They would rather that uh, it was an honest attempt to uh, promote Fermanagh in its most positive light. And really, they would prefer if these problems were not masked in the way that they are. Where's the money coming from for all these very accurate looking photographs of, of meat and other things for sale? This is one big initiative really uh, stemming from uh, the Foreign Office in London. This is David uh, Cameron's gig. It's his invitation, it's his decision uh, to host the G8 in County Fermanagh, which is, don't forget, part of the United Kingdom. It's also on the island of Ireland, it's in Northern Ireland, but uh, he will be the hosting head of government and uh, it's his say-so. Much of the money that has been spent in and around the host town of Enniskillen, about more than £300,000 worth, that's getting on for half a million dollars, the bulk of the cash, And certainly the driving force behind the plans to tidy up the place, that's all coming from London. Well, Dan, you and I are talking about these uh, fake storefronts. Other news outlets are talking about it. Presumably the leaders in their limos will know that that butcher shop they see on their drive to the resort is not real. Do you think some Irish, some people in Enniskillen are hoping that the leaders realize that it's fake and will understand just how bad things have gotten there? The fact that it's made my newspaper, it's made... uh, it's made the newspapers across the Atlantic. And of course, uh, if, if you look on the Twitter sphere, it's everywhere at this stage. So they, they can do what they like. But whenever people get talking about an initiative such as this, then the, the, the truth will come out. And that's what's happening. Irish Times reporter Dan Keenan speaking with us from Dublin. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And you can see a picture of that fake butcher shop in Enniskillen at theworld.org. And now let's kick off today's GeoQuiz with this soaring number. That's the national anthem of Romania in Southeast Europe. The anthem was played earlier this week at a military airfield outside of Bucharest as 200 volunteers battled with the wind to unfurl a gigantic Romanian flag. And an official from Guinness World Records was there for the occasion. It's a fantastic day today here in Romania for Romanian people as a whole who have achieved a new Guinness World Records title for the largest flag draped. The largest flag in the world, in fact, bigger than three football fields. We're going to speak to the man who created it, but first, can you name the colors on the Romanian flag? They're inspired in part by the ideals of the French Revolution. The answer is coming up after the break. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There were thousands, probably millions, of American flags waving in the wind this past Memorial Day. But if you're looking for the biggest flag anywhere in the world, as we were in today's GeoQuiz, then you have to talk to Adrian Dragomir in Romania. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, he's just finished making the world's biggest flag. Adrian, how big is it? It's 349 meters by 227. All right, so about 1,100 feet by 750 feet. That's, according to the Guinness Book, the biggest flag in the world, uh, three times the size of a football field, I've read. Why did you want to create the biggest flag in the world? First of all, it's a professional ambition. I'm managing a flag factory. So uh, the project was, from the beginning, to make the biggest flag in the world. Remind us what the color pattern is of the Romanian flag. Blue, yellow, and red. Three vertical stripes, starting from the pole. It's blue, in the, yellow in the middle, and uh, red at the end. Blue, yellow, and red. That's the answer to our geo quiz today. 
And these colors were adopted in 19th centuries according to the French flag, according to democratically uh, principle of the French Revolution. So uh, they choose to make something to be related to the French flags in 19th centuries. Tell us about the day you unfurled this flag. The flag was unfurled on uh, airfield, the military airfield near Bucharest. In near Bucharest. Yes. After one uh, or two hours, we have managed to exploit the wind, and finally the wind uh, helped us to unfurl the flag. If it's 750 feet wide, how tall does the pole have to be? That's a big pole. No, no, it's impossible to put this on a pole. You need uh, a flagpole probably 500 meters height. So it was unfurled on the ground, on the airfield. We put it on the grass. Was the president there to see the flag unfurled? Uh, no, no, only the prime minister. Well, that's a shame. The president should have seen it before it got put in the warehouse. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was a very busy schedule in that day. <laughs> yeah, presidents tend to be pretty busy. How many different countries have you made flags for, Adrian? No, oh, we are working for many countries. We are working also for uh, American embassy. We have made very big flags for uh, America for 4th of July. Flags, pennants, all kinds of accessories, textile printing, customized uh, work. Are you proud of your achievement? Are you proud of this flag? Of course. For, for me, it's the best achievement uh, to my profession. Best and now and, biggest uh, achievement, yeah? Of course. Adrian Dragomir makes flags, among other things, in Bucharest, Romania. This week he unfurled the biggest flag in the world, a Romanian flag. Thanks very much, Adrian. Okay. Thank you to speak to you, me. And you can see that giant flag for yourself at theworld.org. Right now, somewhere on the shores of Lake Geneva, three young Swiss musicians are digging into some gumbo, metaphorically at least. These guys really dig the music of Louisiana, Cajun, Creole, and Zydeco, and they recently played in Louisiana for the first time, and that's where Bruce Wallace caught up with them. The three members of Mama Rosanne find a lot in... Oh, wait... Man, I love that part. What I started to say is that the guys in Mama Rosanne find a lot in old Louisiana music. If you are really into the punk music, you say the first punk band could be Sex Pistols. Robin Giraud is one of the mamas. But we prefer to say it's the old Cajun guys and the Creole guys, they are the first punks. Robin and his bandmate Cyril Yetrian first found the punk in old Louisiana music about 10 years ago. They heard an English band playing a Cajun rocksteady mashup at a music festival. Then they tracked down a CD with some of the classic guys like Nathan Abshire on it. just blew our minds. This is Cyril. Because for us it was even more powerful than the blues. We, we asked ourselves who are those crazy white guys uh, like playing this super happy version of blues singing in, in French 
and uh, and so I don't know something like there was a before and an after. Isn't exactly the chords or the melodies of the older Cajun and Creole music that captivate them. There is an energy, like something really, really strong. Nobody plays 100% good, you know. It's never clean. It's never, uh, and 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 that's what we like. It's really full of life. That's what we focused on. So the the goal is not only copying a music, but just being concentrated on the fact that we have to bring this uh, truth, the truth, the, this inner fire that belongs to those music. They started getting good on instruments like the washboard and the button accordion, and made sure to get that fire in their music, too. It's easy to hear on their latest album, Bye Bye Bayou. This song's called Mary Lou. And it's easy to feel when you see them live. I first caught them at a small club in Lafayette. They played their first show on Louisiana soil a couple days earlier. This night they were playing right after Steve Riley, a huge name in Cajun music. We were supposed to play at 10 and we played at like 12.30. So I think we had time to drink a little bit too much and then uh, play really fast. When the band finally did start, the space in front of the stage was empty. By the time they launched into their second song, though, the floor was packed. You could feel it rocking up and down in time to the two-step beat. Steve Riley stuck around for the whole set. Afterwards, he said he'd be happy to open up for Mama Rosin anytime. As the band soaks up today's Louisiana scene, they're also exploring the roots of Cajun and other music in the region. When you interest yourself in the south of the United States music, you have to question yourself about the whole Gulf of Mexico, you know, uh, music, and like from Caribbean to north uh, of uh, South America, like the meeting of African rhythm with a white uh, classical uh, music. It has created like a lot of different music, but are, I think they are all related in a way. They've started a record label to put out some of the music they turn up along the way. They've released Cajun compilations and an out-of-print Calypso album. Their musical interests seem limitless, as long as there's a little punk in there. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace in Lafayette, Louisiana. Yes, Swiss men can jump. Swiss trio Mama Rosan wrap up our show today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.